0: Hey, good to see you.
1: Yeah, good to see. you. I, it's been uh, like August since we spoke directly.
0: There you go. Last,
1: uh, lessons, yeah. yeah. it's been yeah. a while. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's been busy. Busy time. Good, good for you, I hope. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> keep me busy. I lots of training and all kinds of things going on uh, with work these days. So yeah, keep me going. So shall we
0: dive right into what I want to know?
1: <laughs> sure. Yeah. Uh, where'd you like to start? Uh, what I do. Um, yeah. You know, so um, I'm a vitreoretinal specialist. Um, when I tell people that, they immediately say, "What the heck is that?" Um, there's only a handful of people that do what I do throughout the throughout the world. Really, mm-hmm. um, there are seven subspecialties in in uh, eye care, and retina is one of them. And I'm in a surgical division a company called Dutch ophthalmic research center. And we sell equipment to surgeons, um, not only equipment, but disposables, uh, forceps, you know, different types of devices. And I'm the company consultant for lack of a better term. I do a lot of things for the company. I started as a rep, um, and managed a uh, sales team, uh, been involved in marketing. Uh, I manage now the service aspects of, of the company. Um, I also handle key accounts, which uh, means that I'm involved in um, teaching facilities throughout the, uh, throughout the country. And so I work with fellowship programs, uh, training doctors, and, and new up-and-coming doctors. And uh, I also do the training for my whole company. So I certify all of our employees for the equipment that we sell. So there's a whole process that I, I developed. For that, so <laughs> it seems
0: like you're mo- the most important person in the company.
1: <laughs> well, I'd, li- I'd like to think so. <laughs> well, I think that the, the key is, you know, in my role, one of the things that I that I had done because I, I held other positions similar to this was kind of keep myself desirable, and I was fortunate enough when I came on board with Dutch Upfalconic that uh, I, I wrote my own job description each level of the way. Um, I was one of the first direct reps. We had a lot of contract guys that uh, worked for us at one, at one point. And, um, when we decided we were going to launch equipment in the United States, I took on the role and immediately went into product manager. And kind of, like I said, wrote the, kind of wrote the, the, uh, the job description for each of the different le- the levels that I was handling. I'm trying to keep myself in a, a position of being needed. And, um, right now, you know, so far so good. I've been with the company for about 10 years. Mm-hmm. Um the funny thing is when whenever I tell people what I do, they always say, well, do you have a medical degree? And I don't. I'm not a doctor, don't have a nursing degree, uh, I have a marketing degree. And um, I got into medical device sales, I guess through say uh, through just having a business degree. Mm-hmm. And there was a point in my life where I just had a, you know, an interest in eyes and then like the physics around it. And so it just drew me in. Um, I had kind of floundered right after college. I, I was involved in music my entire life and actually um, had a, uh, uh, a short period with Jordan Kitts Music. I sold Steinways and I sold Bosendorfers and, and had a fun time doing that, but then I got involved in finance. So I did a bunch of finance type jobs. And then uh, there came an opportunity to get into um, the eye business. I started off doing contact lenses. And I just learned about refractive error and started getting into it from that perspective. It was a medical device. It wasn't totally satisfying for me. I called on uh, optometrists. So the ODs um, were not medical doctors. They referred a lot of business to the ophthalmologists, And that's how I got into surgery. just had immediate um, interest in cataract surgery. And they kind of worked my way back literally to the to the back of the eye. So now I'm a posterior vitro retinal specialist at this point. So... Lots
0: of fun. You know, I I would obviously, you know, I would like to kind of like ask you about that, but just because I'm so curious now, if you kind of like look back to your childhood, right? Mm -hmm. Was there any way to foresee where you would end up? Is there like any connection to no no
1: i i i mean I, if i look at my resume i could probably link things i was always very technical i always leaned towards things that were i mean you would mention on one of your talks we kind of developing a career developing some sort of interest in something that you knew you could grow in and i just sensed that about eyes i was fascinated when i started learning about eyes i always wanted to know more and then once i got a, a taste of it i just said you know, i can make this my career and i just know that it's so super technical that i could never i'll never run out of things to do um in in my business there's the diagnostic side there's the assessing of the uh, what the issue is anatomically and then there's the you know the surgical side which well there's other uh, as, uh different divisions as well but uh, the surgical um, part of it is sort of the end result. You know, when you're changing anatomy, um, you're not you're not changing the disease state or solving somebody's underlying problem. You're changing the anatomy in reaction to it, and that sort of thing just fascinated me um, and I'm just drawn to it. But I guess if there's no real, you know, I guess if you told my young self that someday you'd be a vitro retinal specialist, and, uh, you know, flying all over the world, uh, working with surgeons and, and essentially teaching them, and leaning over their shoulder, telling them what to do, I would have thought that, you know, you're crazy. <laughs> I never <laughs> thought that. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's very rewarding. Um, there's a period where you, you there's a lot of trial, trial and error. And when I look at how we hire people, um, I look for one, one trait specifically, somebody who's intellectually curious, somebody who is not satisfied with just learning the basics and then just getting on, you know, getting the job done at somebody who's always looking for that next step. And when I first started the role that I have now, I, I had to envision myself five, 10 years from then, what would I be doing? Would I be having substantive conversations with surgeons? Would they... Truly trust me? Would they, you know, listen to what I was saying and take my advice? Because I was not—I did not hold the degree that they had. You know, did I bring credibility? Mm-hmm. And so you have to do a lot of learning by doing. So when I want to yeah. train people, it's very difficult when you have to tell someone, "Okay, well, you just have to do this. You have to make these changes on the machine, and you have to trust what's going on uh, inside the eye." Because you you know I always fall back on you know some very very basic concepts that you have to know one of the ways that I train is I look at a very complex situation complex disease state complex fluidics uh, things that can be kind of overwhelming all the eyes are in in the OR looking at you you're the you're the person sort of controlling without controlling and you know I didn't like that feeling so I wanted to get rid of that anxiety but You have to break it down to some basic concepts basic concept on eye surgery is at least for retinas to flatten and repair retina so that the choroid can feed the photoreceptors Mm -hmm. and and it's done by aspirating cutting and then balancing with infusion and as long as you keep the balance of those two together you have successful outcomes Mm
0: -hmm. and
1: uh there's ways to play with that you know i think uh, over a period of time, one thing that I've noticed is that, as a consultant in that sort of arena, when that theater, is, is th- your settings and how you handle surgery. Um, the, your personality kind of comes through. It comes through in the in the settings. It comes through in the outcomes. It can co- you know comes through in just about everything. Sort of like the uh, you know the whole uh, concept. You're part of the whole, and you know the the. The sum of the parts is greater than the whole, but also the, the converse is the same too. It's, you know, the whole is, is equal to the parts, you know, and, and it, you, you become an integral part of the surgery. Mm-hmm. I, really liked, I really liked that. But again, partially because when I first started doing it, I did not like the anxiety involved uh, that I experienced and not feeling in control. So I had to know it. Yeah. So again, you know, getting back to how we, you know, when we hire people and that's the quality I, that I look for. Um, and that's hard to find because you're not in an interview scenario. You're not in the OR. You're not testing somebody in that sort of atmosphere. You know, there's uh, a lot of improvising that goes on in the OR. You know, a lot of reacting to unplanned situations. And again, it's just a matter of like pulling back and sitting back, understanding, you know what you know and apply you know, you input yourself into that scenario and take control of it without without stepping on toes. That's the main thing to can't step on anybody's toes. <laughs> yeah. So, w- when did you get into this business? I've been doing this for about about twenty years. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I started off with uh, Beckton Dickinson uh, doing. Um, just various instrumentation, what we call small units, of so tonometers and you know, kerat, uh, keratomes and some things that were involved in refractive surgery. So for those who, you know, first thing when I, when I explain what I do, people automatically think I'm talking refractive. You know, when people go in and they get vision correction and they come out, you know, 10 minutes later and they see perfect, that, that's refractive.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, so we sold products that dealt a lot with fra- uh, refractive, but that was also my intro to cataract. Um, got to know cataract surgery and, um, shortly thereafter I went to Bauschelmolm and that's where I got a lot of my, not only cataract experience, but, uh, retinal experience. So it's, it's very different. The interesting thing, I will tell you, uh, cataract surgery and retina surgery appeals to different type of surgeons. You'd think mm-hmm. eye surgery is eye surgery, right? It, it's not. Uh, front of the eye.
0: It's, it's kind of obvious to me though, that it's something completely different.
1: Yeah, well, and, and it's not only technique. The te- of course, the technique is different, the instrumentation is different, but the personality. Mm-hmm. And personality-wise, what happens with the anterior, the, the cataract surgeons is they sort of bank on a very uh, planned, well-rehearsed dance step type of a procedure. The way their scheduling is done, and this is not to insult cataract surgeons, cataract surgeons uh, certainly you know give credit where credits due. but um, they they as a result they're very good um, business owners because they understand turn time and cases. They they because they're they planned type surgeries. They know how to book uh, one consecutive case after the next. Um, just a, just a very different type of approach because it's. Um, well rehearsed dance stuff They're counting on certain things. They're counting on repetition. Okay. Mm-hmm. Retina surgery is sort of the if you can picture, um, you know, residency and in any any given classroom, there's always the you know there's the nerds, and they're the ones who are sitting in the back, just you know, super astute, the ones who are really super techie, the ones who are, can't wait to get their hands on lasers and. Uh, different types of ultrasound and you know different types of light sources and all the toys that are involved um, to perform the surgeries and the the disease state is a lot more complex. So again, these are the the surgeons that they they like that blank slate. They get into it. they have a basic um, OCT that they you know review the optical coherence tomography, which is basically. Uh, it's like an ultrasound that shows the, the layers of the retina. So they know what, obviously what they're going into, into surgery, but they have a basic footprint. And then they go in, it's like a blank slate, like an artist, and they, they figure out what needs to be done. And it's fascinating to watch them because there are different techniques. A lot of it's pressure related. And this is, this is where, this is my forte is. For whatever reason, I really got into physics in, in uh, high school and I, I could just, you know, I always think on those terms, uh, thinking on how what pressure impacts the next and, and whatnot. Anyway, um, so th- th- it was something that I just you know dove into and, and could totally relate. But these are the guys who, um, you know, they, they're able to take a disease state that is, you're not going to cure diabetes, okay? You're going to bring a patient from just barely counting fingers. visual acuity to like 2,400. Mm -hmm. So to you and I, that's horrible, right? But to them, it's incredible. Okay. So you're not dealing with taking out a cataractous lens and suddenly you see great. You're dealing with sweeping against the tide of an underlying disease state and and making the patient functional. Mm -hmm. And how they do this without, you know, surgery is all about hurting someone to help someone. So how do you do that by, you know, you know you're going to hurt someone in an already a, a bad scenario. So how do you make that better? So really the best surgeons are the ones who, it's it's especially for retina surgeons, they're not the ones with the best hands, like maybe a cataract surgeon, the quickest and most efficient. They're not necessarily the most astute, studied, and you know top of the class academically. They're the ones who know when to stop. So it's mm-hmm. judgment. it's more levels of, of judgment calls. Mm-hmm. And uh, again, for for me and how I interact, that personality, sort of that calming sort of atmosphere, not harried, uh, calming type atmosphere, very thoughtful and predictive uh, and you know, planned, works, works very well for me. And um, I've been very fortunate that, you know, when I'm in surgery, these guys will listen. You know, I'll have suggestions on settings and and techniques and approaches because I've been doing this long enough. Where now I can reflect on other surgeons that I've worked with throughout the world, and say, well, you know, it's never my opinion. I always third party and say, well, this is what I saw in Belgium, and this is how they did it. We're, you should try. You know, maybe try this technique. It's going to work very well at Duke University, and um just because i you know can reflect on on that experience
0: um been very fortunate hey so giovanni i have so many questions already so let me just uh ask (laughs) (laughs) so first of all like what comes to mind funnily enough to me is like the uh the uh the phrase it's not brain surgery right but it kind of (laughs) kind of is as close to to the brain as you can get as like the periphery of, of like the nervous system. Right. And so it's, it is the optic
1: uh, nervous direct connect to the brain. Yeah.
0: Yes. Yes. So, so it is like, to me, like I said, to me, it's obvious that it requires a different kind of uh, personality to one deal with that. Right? right. So even there you can, you can see that. So like, I'm curious um, because we're probably obviously also going to talk about that. you know, these types of people, like, um, have you? I, I'm sure you have. I'm asking you anyway. So have you? Have you um, developed a radar for like seeing who is going to be good at it, who is going to be staying with it, and
1: yeah, and oh,
0: yeah. Are, are, or are people already kind of like when they get to you, uh, filtered like to a high degree that you know? I'm trying well, to say. Well, first of all,
1: if you're yeah, if you're talking about employees, I mean, it's my job to bring them up to speak. Mm-hmm. So um, if, it's, if it's surgeons, I get, a, I get a sense from the early fellowship what their level is. I mean, mm-hmm. like, like any profession, you see very, very good, very talented people and you see not so talented. But by the time that they actually are doing surgery on their own, they've um, they've had an attending surgeon and they've switched back and forth enough to get experience with, obviously they know what they're doing. But yeah, I mean, there are there are many hours that I spend in surgery, a little frustrated watching people struggle through. And um, but by the time they they get to me, I mean, you've got to remember, my, my job is not to redirect uh, experts. It's, it's to understand where their um, their level is and maybe their aptitude is and then maybe refine that within their own capabilities, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, because, you know, as you know, it, it, there's, there's limitations with the hand, there's limitations, you know, and there's, there, there's all kinds of, of barriers that you may run into, um, and yeah, there's going to be some people that you just can't bring up to the, the other level, I and mean, when it comes to tra- uh, training employees, there's some baseline things that people have to know, and it's, it actually is very trainable. We can take salespeople and medical device coming from other fields. Uh, cardiology or orthopedics, and we can teach them retina surgery. Again, it's a matter of understanding anatomy, disease state, and then fluidics, which is always a little bit of a challenge. But, you know, there's a certification process that I have to bring them through. It means observing in surgery, taking copious notes. You know, there's a long, it's a 52-week process that I have to put together, uh, and then it's ongoing learning from there. Mm -hmm. But, yeah, I mean, I think overall I get a sense for where where people are at and where they're going to end up, you know, whether they have the uh, aptitude. I would imagine you probably have the same. You know, look at, uh, you know, maybe students that you have and you kind of get a sense, right? I mean, okay, this, this person has a, an insight or a drive or something like that to learn. Yeah, and then it's yeah. it's basically the same thing.
0: Yeah. So, but, you know, also seems like it's, it's a field where you, mm-hmm. Constantly to kind of like get feedback about your work as well, right? Like where you see people improve, and yeah. and sort of like you know manage to get through the certification process, and and so yeah. uh, so it, it must be kind of like uh, let's say pretty uh, pretty satis- satisfying to do that kind of job, right?
1: The, yeah, there there are rewards, but they're base hits. You know, they're not home runs. You see. Um, and whether it's a surgeon or an employee that's doing something well, we, we always reflect on the case, kind of pick it apart, the good and the bad. Um, you know, you have to take every scenario as a learning opportunity. So whether you actually take credit, I mean, really what ends up happening is I, I can't take total credit for these things because they're not, they're not my hands, mm-hmm. they're not my judgment calls. I have to guide people through that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, there's there, there's been many times in my career where I've gotten comments and compliments, hey, I wouldn't have been able to do that without you, or, you know, great idea that really, really worked out well. But you have to, I guess, I guess the main thing is, as long as everyone's keeping the patient at the forefront of, you know, their, their concern, the outcome is, you know, the utmost. We have to make sure that patient outcome and patient care is there, and that's really what we're all out for. So whether it's a, a home run or a basic for myself or the surgeon or combined effort, uh, you know, with patient benefits.
0: Yeah. I mean, like I, I still sort of, uh, try to wrap my head around the responsibility, um, that you take on as you're operating on the eye or on the, on the retina. Um, Mm -hmm. Like, like, yeah, maybe you can sort of like replace the lens if you don't do it right. But you know, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> so, so, what is, what are the psychological, what would you say are the psychological challenges that that um, you have to myself. deal with in the, for yourself, and well, and for the surgeons, obviously.
1: Well, the surgeon first off is always looking at things from a liability perspective. They risk a lot being directed by someone like myself, or representative of a company. Um, There are disclosures to the patient that yes, there's going to be a rep here. They're trying new equipment or some new ideas. And so the patient does recognize A little bit of that stress is taken out, but you see personalities change with surgeons. They can be, I mean, I've hung out with some really kind people outside of surgery and then you get them into surgery and it's just absolute monsters mm-hmm. um so you have to kind of compartmentalize that i guess you have to put it aside and, and get through the case so i guess for me the psychological effects are just understanding that again we have one goal in mind is that and that is patient outcome so we do what we have to do and if i'm getting yelled at or if i'm getting questioned um so be it, you know. And uh, you know, that that has happened. There's been times where I've had to uh, have a, a very difficult conversation after after surgery and explain to the surgery really what you don't want to do is question the authority if they're doing something incorrectly. Um the patient is awake, by the way, in our surgery. It's it's topical or you know, the retro bulbar and bulbar block for the eye. It's it's uh, patient eyes immobilized, but the patient is completely awake. So they, are, they will hear conversations. And really what you don't want to do is come across as telling what the surgeon to do because he or she is um, inexperienced. It's, yeah. it's because, yeah. So, yeah, there's a lot of stress. Um, yeah. And then around me, uh, you know, there's there's a, a lot of factors that people don't even consider. It's not just surgeon and, and representative or, or consultant. It's, it's nurses, uh, nurse manager, um, circulator scrub tech, uh, there are people that you have to interact with, not step on their toes. You have to show them how to do their job, again, without stepping on their toes. There's a specific way that we have to set up that's most efficient for our machine. I have to make sure that they do that, because if they don't, we get what's called a gremlin in the room. You know, we're constantly chasing the gremlin. If one thing goes wrong, sets a domino effect, and before you know it, another thing goes wrong or somebody didn't hear something properly or they press the wrong button or and then all of a sudden it's complete mayhem so again Mm -hmm. it comes down to controlling without saying i'm in control Mm -hmm. it's it's a way to sort of you know project you have to project your for lack of better term like project your consciousness into the whole situation you have to make sure that people are aware Mm -hmm. okay he knows what he's doing Mm I've been here before, says things with confidence. You know, give him the space as long as you show respect, everything works out. Yeah.
0: I think I know what I think I know what you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I think we talked. I I think you know of all things that I that I do, and again, I just learned this by doing, I'm most effective in the OR. Um, I do wet labs, dry labs, I do lots of teaching and speaking engagements, um, lots of different trainings and, you know, whether it's staff or, or doctors, the thing that I like doing the most is just being in surgery and just reacting and, and, uh, you know, getting into the, the fluidics piece. Um, you know, that's, that's really been my thing. And I think I got that a lot from cataract surgery because cataract surgery is dealing with such a small space in the United anterior chamber, chamber is such a small area and minute changes affect uh, in a great way what's happening in fluidics and that translates to outcomes. So I kind of took that from into to retina surgery and I just understood, you know, what needed to be done from a fluidics perspective. And, um, you know, I think that my, my issue is because I've come such a long way with what I do. It's getting harder and harder for me to explain to new employees without them the head exploding.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. You
1: know, it can get really technical. And uh, I, I've had I've had trainees lock up and say, Giovanni, I don't know what you're talking about. I'm having a panic attack. <laughs> mm-hmm. Had that happen. And uh, but you know, that's Part of part of what you sign up for in uh, in surgical sales,
0: I I, I guess like uh, like in any in any field that you kind of like become a real expert or like the the super nerd, let's say, there's always always this risk of um, kind of of not speaking the more general language anymore,
1: mm-hmm.
0: right? Yeah. And yeah, that is, that is something that I would have asked you anyway, because like, I'm kind of interested in how do you make sure that you have the capacity to be focused. um, And I mean that like, like in all different parts of the job, of the job. Right. So, so how do you motivate yourself and how, you know, how do you kind of like flip the switch? Let's say, is there, is there, (laughs) how do you do that?
1: It's, it's tough to flip the switch because I, I wear such diverse hats right now um, because I'm managing the service side. I have a, a few people that report to me. Again, I have to do the training and also I'm doing uh, key accounts, teaching mm-hmm. facilities. Along with that, I we have new products. So I do a lot of field study, uh, introducing um, new products uh, to key, key opinion leaders and getting commentary or getting validation on them. So I think that what I've by necessity have done is is look at each of those functions and every once in a while one pulls me in a direction and i have to i have to address it so there's that that natural dynamic that i'm kind of forced but where, where i like to lean and where i like to uh, enjoy what i do is is more on the again not only being in surgery but also introducing new ideas and uh, that's why I consider myself more of a consultant like I've held a lot of talk a lot of titles you know, functionally I'm the key accounts manager functionally service manager and functionally training uh, director but really what I like to do is consult and that's what gets me excited that's what's my my driver um, and I kind of like keep on the cutting edge I mean I we, we read uh, trade journals Um you know and these are discussions that i have with surgeons and they appreciate the fact that i stay on top of new studies and and whatnot because they're the authors of these of these papers so i see them at meetings and whatnot and these and these meetings over the years have been great because then because it becomes like a fraternity party really i mean you go into these big meetings and it's now a dedicated audience of you know vitro surgeons all across the world and you see the same guys year after year after year and you know, revisit old jokes and and whatever, but, uh, you know, it's, it's always a good time and, and, um, but they see the dedication and, and it's not like any other industry where if somebody sees you long-term in it, they know your commitment to it. And, you know, by that time they probably heard you speak. They've probably given a speaking engagement. Uh, you've commented on their papers. You've had roundtable discussions. You may have coordinated um, uh, special events for them. So you know, they know exactly where you're coming from, and that's that's what drives me is that rewarding part. Because, um, although I, part of what I do is in sales, there's no award at the end of the year. There's no hey, you've achieved you know this. This trophy. So my mm-hmm. trophies are the pat on the back, nice case. That was really that was really good. Nice suggestion or you know, no really bo- like no bonus
0: no bonus for you.
1: Oh I, yeah, I've got a bonus. Sure, <laughs> <laughs> that's yeah, of course. <laughs> yeah, I didn't want to so, bring the monetary aspect. <laughs> <I expected. laughs> <laughs> so,
0: so is there is there competition for your company in the US?
1: Yeah, so uh, there are three main players, uh, Dutch Ophthalmic, uh, Bausch & and Alcon. Alcon has 85% market share, mm-hmm. and then between us and uh, Bausch & we share the rest 15%. Mm-hmm. And we're ahead of Bausch now. And Bausch has been around for about 100 and, 140 years. We've been around for 30. So we're a small player in uh, you know, against Alcon. The interesting thing is you know, get into like the psychology of it. When you're king of the hill, like Alcon, your your game plan is very different. When you're a king of the mountain, you're defending a lot. And no matter how many people you have on the field, you're you're pushing away the guys attacking the hill. Yeah. For the for the guys like us, we're always on growth mode. Uh, well, initially growth mode and establishing a foundation. Now that we've established a good foundation, now it's split protecting what we have and also charging the hill Mm -hmm. so again it it, we have to hire that type of mentality that type of a person that is uh driven by you know the challenge of not having having everything given to them you know we you you have to be a, a entrepreneur you have to be a self starter you have to be thirsty for knowledge and um we've we've spent a lot lot of time this past 10 years just building structure just building uh, how we want to structure the company and it's been tough it's been very tough but yeah i'm excited i'm excited
0: but it's i'd assume it's a it's a pretty big market right like if it's the whole of the us um...
1: yeah well see any medical uh, well, capital equipment. Okay. So we're a capital equipment company also selling medical device. We used to be medical device only. Now we've redefined. So that is an anchor. It's all companies like that that have an anchor for a specific, uh, specialty. It's dependent on the disease state or the population. So cataract surgery, for instance, if you live old enough, you will need cataract surgery. So okay. it's a hundred percent population, whatever the population is. Now it's just a matter of, the waves of, of the generations. You know, most people live in Florida. They are X age, therefore the biggest market is Florida. You know, it's kind of looking at it from that regional perspective. For retina surgery, as long as we keep people uh, eating poorly, we have diabetes, uh, and there's age related macular degeneration, and a few other issues related to aging. Um, our business grows between one and two percent. Every year, based on population growth, so if you can exceed the one or two percent population growth of uh, of the disease state, you're doing pretty well. And we've we've grown in ten well, double digit uh, market share every year since I've uh, started with the company. So it's it's pretty significant. Mm-hmm. There it's, there there are a few things that are potentially will affect our surgical volume. There's drug regimen. Because there's things called anti VEGF, which is a uh, vascular endothelial growth factor that stops the uh, neovascularization that creates all these problems in the back of the eye. So, there's those injections. Um, there's other types of, of uh, drugs that will delay surgery. Mm-hmm. So, we see a little bit of an impact, but um, surgical for retina will, I don't want to say, always be there. But there's there's certainly a need for it now, and again, as long as the population maintains and and grows based on the disease state, we'll have we'll have a job.
0: hmm yeah. yeah, yeah. I'm I'm sure you will have the job <laughs> for for a while. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So So, um, can, can you can you like? Yeah, I know for for you, it's it's just just. Nothing probably anymore, but just can you give me like an example for a specific kind of uh, degeneration of the retina that and, and how to fix it?
1: Well, okay, so there are basically three different categories of things that we deal with there's uh, macular holes and puckers, that's one category, and then there's retinal detachments, and then there's diabetic cases. Now, each of them have either vitreous or retina related issues so the, the most basic one macular macular degeneration um, as we age the vitreous which is the the gel in our eye, mm-hmm. it liquefies so when it changes its medium changes from a gel to more of a liquid it collapses on itself while it collapses it also creates tractional forces on our retinal layers so once you start pulling on those retinal layers it can potentially pull either a plug out which is a hole or starting off one, which is a pucker, or it eventually can create a, a full detachment, okay? And then now we have to find ways to, to uh, flatten and repair that. Yeah. So the way we do that, we go into three sites into the eye. There's the infusion line, which is always uh, superior, um, well, inferior temporal, okay? So inferior temporal is a surgeon sitting at the patient's head. Okay. And the patient's facing straight up to the ceiling. Okay. So your infusion line is always furthest away to the temporal side and then 10 and two trocars, which are entry sites, cannulas into the eye. That goes in through what's, what's called pars plana. Pars plana is the safety zone between the, the iris. So the colored part of your eye and the transition to the white the sclera. There's like three and a half to four millimeters space there that's a safety zone without damaging retina. So we go into that through cannulas. Uh, we aspirate and cut um, the vitreous. So vitreous is like a it's like a sweater start pulling it keeps pulling unless you're cutting it as you're going. And you have to be very careful because if you're pulling too fast, it could detach retina as you're trying to get rid of the vitreous. So there's a balance there. Mm-hmm. So we do a vitrectomy clear all that out. And we um, we take out what's called the hyloid it's a transitional um layer between the vitreous and the back of the eye take that out there's literally, literally calling popping the hyloid we put a staining agent on the retinal surface and the staining agent only sticks to live tissue And mm-hmm. called the ilm which is the internal limiting membrane so it identifies visually uh, what we need to peel okay so if we identify we see the hole that was created by the tractional forces. We need to peel around that and relieve the traction. If you think of um, ILM like scaffolding, you know, in a structural base, if you take the scaffolding out, there's no longer anything to grow back on it. There's no scar tissue or any response that the body can make to grow back and then create more wrinkling or defects in the retinal layers. Mm-hmm. So we peel that off and that's done with forceps. And all the while we're using a, um, a light pipe So it's an endo illumination. Uh, We utilize uh, an LED light. There are others, xenon and photon. Each of them has phototoxic uh, effects. So we have to be very careful of damaging the eye again while we're looking in it to repair. Mm -hmm. Peel that membrane. Uh, Then we have to create what's called a tamponade. So a tamponade is a way to push against the walls of the eye. it's typically done uh, with an expansive gas. We utilize something called C3F8 or SF6 to uh, use it a specific concentrate, usually 15, 20% with filtered air. And after we exchange fluid out of the eye, put air in um, and through just turn of stop cops, get equal pressures. Again, it's always the balance of pressures. We put the expansive gas in, remove the trocars, Make sure they're self sealing. If there's any leak, we suture them. But this is all done transconjunctivally. So the conjunctiva is the, the clear part of your eye. You look at the white of your eye, there's a clear film there. Mm-hmm. And when we go into the eye, it's done just straight through, straight across that. My company developed uh, well, transglateral uh, entries. And um, it's a very easy way to get into the eye, a very small gauge. Talking about microsurgery, so we're looking into a microscope using 23, 25, or 27 gauge instruments, and uh, so it's very delicate. And the membranes that we're peeling are a tenth of a millimeter, a tenth of the, I'm sorry, a tenth of a hair, a human hair. So it's very, very, very fine maneuvers. Mm-hmm. So that's that's macular hole or pucker surgery. If it's retinal detachment, we have the same basic steps of entry into the eye and infusion uh, vitrectomy, remo- removing the gel, the vitreous gel, then we have to So, so let them. me, let
0: me ask the question. So, so just so I understand. So like you use, you, you put the gas in to kind of like push, push, yeah. push the, uh, let's the layers, call it yeah. the layers back to the walls, mm-hmm. right? Correct. And, and then you, then you close the eye you close it back and the, 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 the gas remains inside and keeps, or or does it?
1: It remains, inside, it remains there. It mm-hmm. dissipates after a period. So depending on the type of gas, SF6 may last a week. Uh, C3F8 will last two weeks mm-hmm. and it's positioning dependent. So if we're working on the macula, which is in the back of the eye, uh, the patient will actually be instructed to face down for as long oh, as yeah. yeah, they yeah. can. So yeah, face and down. down. And that, obviously, it's, it's trying to rise, so it's creating the most amount of pressure to the back of the eye. Um, but yet will dissipate, and then the body will naturally exchange fluid um, to replace that at one point. So it doesn't, the gas doesn't stay there forever.
0: Okay, okay. so there's got to be a second surgery to, to put the... No,
1: it just uh, dissipates. So uh, you know, there is no second surgery. Now, okay. yeah, there is another type of a tamponade, which is a, a, um, a heavy oil. So we use what's called a 5,000 centistoke oil, which is put in the eye and it remains for a lot longer, period. That's done for much more severe breaks. So this is non-positioning dependent. Okay. So um, if we put a 5,000 centistope oil in, well, that oil is not absorbed by the body. So we do have to eventually take that out doing another surgery. So some of the surgeries I see are second or third or fourth surgeries uh, for a patient long-term care, you know, long-term repairs that this patient has to have.
0: And so, and what, what's the the name of that gel again in the, in the, eye? um,
1: well, it's, it's a silicone oil and it's, uh, it's identified by its weight. Uh, we have either a thousand centistoke or a 5,000 centistoke, uh, oil. And it's, um, it's, like I said, it's not absorbed by the body. It's very, very heavy um and um it's all about surface tension and, and then there's the emulsification rates too you have to be concerned about okay does this is this going to remain in the eye for a long enough period where it doesn't then emulsify and start to become yeah. more liquefied and then and then your repair is no longer yeah so, you, know, you know all these things are taken into consideration what what
0: i was um uh, wondering is the the name of the gel that's in the eye you oh, know, yes. the, so and, and, and what yeah and what, what is the function uh, of that in the it in the health, in the in the healthy yeah. eye
1: uh, it serves no function which Thank is you. Uh, now when you, when the eye forms there's a, a nerve that um, goes up the center um, the vitreous just fills a body so it fills the space. In fact, it's called the vitreous body or the vitreous humor. It creates a distance between the, the lens and then the retina. So as you're refracting light coming into your cornea and your lens, it's then focused on the retina and it, vitreous just holds that space.
0: Interesting. It, Interesting. Yeah, it
1: just creates a problem when you're older. That's, that's the issue is as you get older, it collapses and then yeah. it has to be removed. So nine times out of 10, our surgeries start with a, a parched plane of vitrectomy. So just taking the vitreous out.
0: Yeah. that That's that very interesting. I've never heard of that before. <laughs> yeah. So, but the good thing, the good thing is that you don't have to kind of like rebuild something like that um, after the surgery. That's no. the good part. No. Yeah.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. There's no rebuilding of that. But you know, the intricate part too, There's there are times where we have to translocate retina, uh, you know, in this whole, because referring to judgment calls, there are times where the retina is so damaged, or we have a uh, bolus detachments, which is, Huge uh, parachute like detachments in the back of the eye. So the patient is essentially blind. So you can push everything back. So it's done with different heavy liquids intraoperatively, then laser and tacking it down. Um, there are other times where we have to sacrifice a, a peripheral portion of the retina to then move over and, and flatten it another spot. So instead of having the entirety of your primary gaze completely, you know, blind. Now you're gonna have a little section. So it's, it, again, it's all about, can you get the photoreceptors flattened, you know, to, to the choroid by, you know, maybe sacrificing your other areas. And this is, it's all judgment calls. And this is where the artistry of it all comes into play, which is really fascinating, really. I mean, uh, and again, as you can see, it's very hard to explain unless you're actually seeing the surgery and I can point out things to you, um, what's actually happening. You know, there are retinal detachments where it, once we start exchanging portions of the inside of the eye, it gets very difficult to see. So we have to burn areas like perimeters of the brakes in order to flatten that out. There's multiple stages before you can actually get to the flattening uh, portion of the surgery. So each type of case presents its own challenges. So again, yeah. it comes down to, it's you know, you have to... Uh, Got a lot of tricks to the trade. You've got cryo, so you got freezing options. You've got laser to burn. You've got cautery to mark and tack and burn. You've got uh, illumination sources that will direct light. we also have um, chandeliers that will, just like a chandelier, hang at the top of your eye so that you have bi-manual options. You have two instrumentation options working at the same time versus one as an uh, in a, uh, endo illumination way you working with the other. So, um, and all the while the surgeon's looking into a microscope, um, while they're working and they're controlling two things with their feet. They're controlling the, um, scope with their right foot usually, and their left foot is the interface to the machine. So that's how they control the vacuum and the cut speed and all that. So it's kind of like flying a plane. Yeah. (laughs)
0: Yeah, I'm starting, starting to understand that
1: now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, that's this is where, you know, again, having I, I, I have never operated on a, on a human, but I do a lot of, uh, you know, I understand the surgery because I've, I've done it on pig eyes, I've done it on synthetic eyes, and I know the interaction that you have with your foot pedal. And a lot of what I do initially with a surgeon is observe them. And one of the things that I'll do is watch their foot people always ask me why are you, what are you doing on the floor watching their foot their their foot defines how they approach surgery if they're called a pedal pusher if they just push down they, they want things to happen very aggressively and very fast they want to see it immediately want things to react so I have to, that's a different school of thought than somebody who feathers it and eases into it because one causes fast reaction but potential detachments and Mm -hmm. other problems the other is slow to allow them to see what's actually happened but safer and Mm -hmm. i and i can't tell them press down harder i have to react to what they're doing okay Mm -hmm. and that's that's where i have to make adjustments on the machine and the fluidics so that it's it's best for their technique Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so yeah it it takes a lot of um you know i think that if somebody was to come into surgery with me and observe what i did for the first Couple of days it's a you didn't do anything you just stood there mm-hmm. <laughs> actually i'm just not only observing i'm taking mental notes and you know uh, literally i'm making notes too but there are things like pedal position patient patient positioning uh angle of entry you know all these things that go into how the guy does surgery and then that in turn translates for what i need to do
0: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: so yeah, and um, uh, it's it's uh, and in every case has its own challenges too. Um, on top of that, not just the doctor's personality and the you know uh, and the staff, but but uh, that particular case is, is always is always different. And again, that's that's what my forte is. That's what I really enjoy doing most. Yeah, yeah.
0: So, so the 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 retina. You said like the. Uh, sometimes there's the need to relocate parts right yeah. so um is is the retina is the, like the distribution of the uh, photoreceptors uh is that uh the same through, throughout all the parts of the retina or is there like no definitely no. probably not huh?
1: no there's uh, rods and cones so each one controls either Dark, you know, uh, shadowing or or colors, and you know, we have a fovea, which is the concentration of the photoreceptors. That's your your area of finest focus. And of course, you have periphery. So, yeah, there's not an even distribution. And that's again where, if you have to translocate um, uh, retinal tissue to a place that makes sense because you can flatten it, does it make then functional uh, sense for the patient? Yeah. So that's that's why that's why
0: I'm asking this. Yeah, Yeah. 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 And and so the um, just just so that I that I like completely understand. So the the photoreceptors kind of like attach to the nerves that to the optic nerve, right? And signal, so, yeah. Eventually. So 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 if you work with the retina, do you actually have to take into account the cables? That are attached to the receptors or can you simply take a piece and reattach it somewhere else and it will kind of it will heal and kind of reconnect
1: yeah so um, you're moving basically sheets okay Mm -hmm. so you're not moving like if you're dealing with a a detachment it's already it's already detached you already have uh, photoreceptors in in that layer that you're moving so you're not having to relocate uh, separate layers necessarily. Mm
0: -hmm. So
1: you're moving like maybe a a sheet, but in order to do that, maybe you have to relieve some tractional forces or some some subretinal bands. You actually have to cut so that you can move it over. Okay. And then how you move that over again, it could be a heavy liquid that you put on top of it and roll it out like a, like a, like a rolling pin Mm -hmm. and then tack it down with, with retinal uh, laser dots. Wow. And then, uh, and then a pressure after that, a tamponade with the oil or expansive gas. Mm-hmm. So you know the, these things are. Before I started doing this, I was, you know, the first time I ever saw retina surgery, I saw these just probes, just kind of in the eye, moving around. I couldn't figure out what the heck they were doing, and, and um, it, it's it's pretty intricate. You know, there's some there's some things that, like I said, it's it's a lot of balances on uh, on pressures, and um, one of the things that I developed from my my company was the way to, to peel membranes. Remember we talked about peeling a membrane or peeling scar tissue away from like a hole is through a, um, a surge of, of pressure. So instead of utilizing, a, well, you can use a forcep as a, as an adjunct, but you surge pressure to push the wall away from you at the same time that you're pulling the forceps. Um, but again, you know, that, that sort of approach is kind of unconventional because, how much pressure to put in the eye before you start choking the optic nerve? Um, again, it just has to be a, a balance. Um, you know, and but uh, it, 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 it's it's it, it's interesting. You know, it's uh, it, those are the kinds of things that I like to focus on. Is like the new techniques and look at the existing um, the existing technologies and say, okay, well, what if we did it this way? You know, mm-hmm. now it's just a matter of convincing my company to uh, implement some of these ideas. <laughs>
0: Yeah. It's uh yeah, you know, like I've just said there's this maybe a little bit of a metaphysical sort of like thought. Okay. So <laughs> in in the eye by design, you have the blind spot. Right? Yeah. yeah. So so uh, if, you know, if there was a way to just just cover up the blind spot with with retina. Mm -hmm. you know with with photoreceptors um that would have to probably be be cloned outside of the body or something and then kind of like i mean this is just a stupid idea but but it's (laughs) it's just just it's just fascinating you know because eye does
1: have a a blind spot yeah yeah that's a cool thought you know they are right now we're working with stem cells uh-huh. Um, different uh, type, you know, in, in the healing process, actually injecting. So you know, it's always hard to tell where the industry is going because, um, you know, is it small gauge, smaller gauge surgery or is it different in fluidics or what is it? Um, you know, we, we had talked about that in kind of a skunk type group of ours. And we all agreed that the smaller gauge surgery that you go, the more time it takes. So it's not going to go that route. But now it's going to get on more of like a genetic or a um, you know like these Da Vinci systems that are now robotic, and and it's going to be more about gene therapy or or um, you know basically injecting into a subretinal space tiny needles so that you can address things on a, on a on a drug level, but you need a machine to do that because the hand can only be so steady. Yeah.
0: Yeah. yeah.
1: Um, but in order to pull a lot of these things off, you have to have enough foresight where the industry is going. There's been a lot of enhancements in technology, that a lot of money that goes into some things, thinking that the industry is going to go that way. And it just doesn't mm-hmm. because it takes so long to introduce new technology. Mm-hmm. And um, so, yes, yeah, stem cells has become a very, very big thing. There's huge promise in that. Partial because it takes out a lot of the ethical um, considerations, you know, with uh, embryonic stem cells and the implications there. There are now adult stem cells that can be um, reassigned, um, called pluripotent cells. So you can actually replicate, I guess, whatever you want uh, from these retinal uh, stem cells and not have there be any kind of an ethical issue with harvesting embryonic cells. So there's all that really cool things in retina, and um, there's you know, lots of room to to uh, to grow in this industry.
0: That's yeah, that's super fascinating. So yeah. I, I think I think you're not you're not uh, you're not thinking about retiring anytime soon, right?
1: <laughs> no, I don't think I can. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> i got I got a U8. I got a U8. You
0: you gotta ask for a bigger bonus.
1: Yeah, yeah. (laughs) I really, I I really do enjoy what I do, though. Um, I think you know when I'm training, I think it comes through. I think I get really excited about it, and uh, you know, I'm okay wearing the nerd hat. You know, I'm okay uh, being like the techie guy, even if if I'm accused of being too techie. um, You know, I I I really do enjoy. I really enjoy what I do. Very very fortunate. I think I mentioned this to you that. Completely, just I guess, kind of fell into this. Maybe I aligned myself with the right people. I don't know. Maybe they saw something in me, or whatever. They gave me the right opportunity, but I'm completely lucky. I just,
0: you know, you're trimental. you're you're also Italian and passionate, so that helps. <laughs> <There you go>. <laughs>
1: <laughs> That's it. <Yeah. laughs> uh, so you're, you're
0: so you're you're traveling a lot, I guess, right? Across yeah the and back
1: into travel mode um, i'll uh, I, i've been to miami a handful of times recently indiana um, not a whole lot of international i will be launching some new equipment at the end of the year so we'll have to go to holland so our, our uh, home office is in zeidland mm-hmm. um, as part of that sort of certif- i have as a trainer i have to get certified i don't think that it means attending surgery but we launched our first piece of equipment i went to um Oh, somewhere in Belgium, Leuthen. No, no, no. Uh, Leuthen yeah. And uh, spent some time with a couple of surgeons there. Um, but yeah, I mean, and we now have a, another counterpart to what I do for, for key accounts for teaching facilities. He covers the West. So now I can focus more on the East Coast, um, Baskin Palmer, Johns Hopkins University, um, you know, Columbia Presbyterian, you know, basically uh, on the East Coast. So. Yeah. Yes, I'm continuing to travel, but maybe not as far and not as often. Has
0: mm-hmm, mm-hmm. has travel been like a, a challenge for you as a person, is or is that something that comes naturally to you? And like, I mean, well, let me just ask you: like, are you staying in good hotels, or or <laughs> what's the situation yeah. there for you?
1: <laughs> yeah. So you know, okay. So um, do I like travel? Sometimes. Um, I got to a point where, you know, it was a necessary evil. I have like two sets of clothes and two, you know, travel uh, toiletries and whatnot. So it was very quick to turn around and and leave the house whenever I needed to. Um, I think I became desensitized to travel. Mm -hmm. There was a period where, you know, I read, you know, I, I kind of a chameleon, I'll do what I need to do and, get uh, a lot of really good reading in or study and whatnot. Um, so I was desensitized. Um, then there became a period where I didn't travel. Now I'm back into it and I'm not liking it nearly as much. It's kind of mm-hmm. a pain in the neck now mm-hmm. uh, because I have less patience, you know, I guess um, conveniences and, and whatnot, you know, just, I just uh, waiting in lines, a lot of dead time, Um it's, it can be a strain you know um, and uh, I, you know I just I just kind of work with the, the situation now um, yeah I mean I am fortunate again that I can manage I can go wherever I need to um, if I have to stay home then you know I make that I make that judgment call so although I do have one direct report completely trust everything you know that I I don't have to be at any given spot
0: unless, of
1: course, we have
0: meetings. So, yeah, yeah, you, you, I guess you know why I asked that, I I asked that question, right? Like travel, traveling has been a big part of my life, and uh, yeah, and I have to say, I'm not not really looking forward into getting back into it, and
1: (laughs) yeah, yeah, well, you miss. You know, there was a period when, when my daughter, my youngest daughter was very young and I chose a career path that didn't have as much travel. And I guess there was some limitations monetarily or, or whatever. And then once you got to a certain age, I said, you know, to will be traveling a lot, but here's, here's the flip side is I might be home a Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday when other dads are not. Yeah, yeah. And, um, you know, uh, maybe I wasn't around as much as as the other dads or or whatever at times. But there, like I said, there's there's periods where uh, I was. So th- there was definitely that sacrifice. Um, like I said, it, it, I, I travel with Marriotts a lot, and things have changed with Marriott after Bonvoy took over, and I can go on and on and on. But yeah, I have like a regular hotel, nice chain that i stay at and um you know just ridiculous points to use if if never family wanted to go on a vacation and you know use the points but uh so are some benefits you know mm-hmm. like i mean i can't complain like it just you know i have to put it into perspective i, I have opportunities that others don't and I'm, I'm appreciative of them and when i go to places that i don't care for i mean i just try to get into the local culture i don't i don't like to go to chain restaurants like try to go to the local places and see what the local people are into and you know get a get a feel for that culture and um you know i'll take pictures there's a period where i was you know it's all over and i'm taking pictures and posting on facebook and uh, you know some people would say where well, are you going where are you at now <laughs> but uh, yeah I, you know it, it it definitely gets old though
0: it gets old. Yeah, 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 yeah. But you know, like the 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 upside definitely is the fact that you actually are forced to take new perspectives, even just just physically, right? Like you're in a new place and you're in a new climate and and a different kind of. Uh, um uh, should I say this? Like, a, like a southerner may have like a completely different psychology than a northerner or you know like and and i think and and that is that is sort of like what i i think what i've drawn out of uh being on the road on you know worldwide is like meeting uh and getting to know different cultures and climates and um and and you know i think i think it's a it's an okay price uh to have you know, having to get on a plane, but if it's if it's at five in the morning, then that it's a problem. Yeah, <laughs> like yeah, <laughs> <what could happen laughs> a few of those.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. In fact, recently um, I booked a hotel. It was probably an hour out, so it was because I was near a surgery center I was working at. I booked a hotel right near there, so it made sense. Well, I also booked a flight leaving. This was coming out of Indianapolis at six a.m. Well. Flight out of Indianapolis at 6 a.m. means getting there on or around maybe four, four thirty, you know, which means leaving the hotel three, three thirty, which means getting up around two, two thirty. Yeah. So I asked the front desk and I said, "By the way, what are my options here?" Because I was in the middle of Indiana, mm-hmm. the outskirts of, of the city, and her response was, well, "You really don't have many options at all. There's no taxis. I mean, you can try to get on Uber, but I highly doubt that." Just going to be an Uber driver anywhere in the vicinity at 3 a.m. So okay, well, I'm I'm getting a cab. I'm going staying at a hotel at the airport that has a shuttle to get get back. So there's that hassle I run into, you know.
0: Yeah, you know, like <laughs> like for us, it's like we we play a show uh, like in I remember one in Istanbul, and the the show starts at 9:30, and uh, we pack we are packed up at one at uh, 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 how do you say, like the third and, you know, half, what well, after oh, yeah. midnight, after midnight, get to the hotel and have to leave the hotel at two in the morning. It's like, it's yeah, stuff like that.
1: <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah. So,
0: yeah. <laughs> so maybe, you know, just to, to come back to the eye as uh, as an objective uh, study and, uh what is what is sort of like, like the most fascinating aspect about the eye and also maybe let's just say like even even overall like the human uh, um, physiology, you know like what what is what is fascinating to you, what is most fascinating to you?
1: Well they say that the eye is the most or seeing is the most prized of, of the senses. And that's why, you know, when you, know, you suggested uh, the third year, why that was fascinating to me, because it was a completely, you know, I had always had this eye perspective and I thought, you know, it's the window to your soul and, you know, all these uh, other uh, cliches and whatnot. But, you know, you can learn so much from the eye, I think is what I, you know, when I look at the eye, even a basic eye exam, you can tell if someone has uh, high blood pressure, or cholesterol, Um, There was all kinds of things that you can tell from the eye. Um, I'm I'm fascinated that there are seven subspecialties in such a small piece of the anatomy, the human body. Um, I'm also fascinated that it's direct connect to the brain. Mm -hmm. Um, And also, you know, get into this whole how images work and how information is sent to the brain. I mean, just creates a whole new world of, how we collect data, Mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. talk about like how we experience our consciousness and way we perceive things. Um, it's really, it's really pretty cool. You know, um, I mean, I, I don't know if other people think this way, but I think in images, you know, I think in, you always have this self dialogue and Mm -hmm. I, I think in images and I think in, I kind of, you know i I wonder what it's like for people who have never seen like how Mm -hmm. obviously they can they relate they can in a different way but uh you know it's just it's fascinating to me how the human body communicates to the outside world um and the, the eyes is it's like the most obvious of things you see these videos of people who are colorblind and they get these special glasses and see the emotion just immediately just brush over them. And, you know, it's, it's fascinating. (laughs) I, you know, I can kind of relate because for my, for my hearing, like I have very poor hearing. It might've been because I played a lot of really loud music when I was young. Maybe it was a genetic thing, but yeah, I'm losing my hearing. I wear hearing aids and I'm only 53. And I, even though I wear them all the time, I lose quality of sound. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as I get older, and you lose a quality of vision, we get by, you know, we wear glasses, and we have accommodation for reading and distance and whatnot. And it all works. Um, but I just wonder how that changes our worldly perspective, you know, does it translate to other things? And because, you know, we just deal with, you know, I adjust my glasses, or I look a certain way to get a better focus. It's just everything like your whole positioning. In space is completely different you know so yeah i find that i find that fascinating
0: you No, know, my my daughter um she like again like like i wasn't aware of the power of the eye like her eyes and her ears as well but like her eyes in particular like, like she sees like a small dog like a mile away <laughs> it's really it's it's so fascinating and like like where where to me it's like it's not even i i you know i wouldn't even know there's anything and kind of like she can see it and 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 the funny thing is that as you say like the perception right like the the um the fact that there is this uh let's say relatively easy to understand receptive organ Right, where mm-hmm. we can describe. Okay, we got the cones and blah blah blah. We got all these things, and there's yeah. these layers, and then they're connected to the optic nerve, and blah blah blah. But then, like everything that happens after that, where you can like recognize shapes and and objects and 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 yeah. uh, I I'm totally with you. It's like it's it's really the most magical uh, uh, thing, yeah. right? And it kind of like kind of like raises these these really deep uh, philosophical questions, right? Like, yeah. is, is what is out there, is that real, right? Like, where, like, if we actually, we seem to believe that we actually have these receptors, like we have the organ that is the eye, yeah. right? Yeah. And, and the question is like, where does, where, where does the construction of reality actually start? Does right. it start kind of like outside of our body? Right. Is it, is it, are we constructing the things that are outside of our body or are, are we even constructing our body yeah. like, you know, like, and, and so where is that, you know? Well, I, what's I, fascinating I to me
1: is, is when you look at dreams, for example, you know, I've had dreams where I'm in places that I've never been. Um, so obviously my imagination is putting pieces of things that I've seen together, creating an atmosphere or, you know, and people and whatnot. But think about that. That's that's pretty amazing that that the human brain can do that. Where you're putting together all this information to something that makes sense and is recognizable and feels and looks real, but it's not. You know, and it's uh, it's it's fascinating. It's, and you know, when people, and that's you know the whole thing with like imagination. When you when you Think about something. They say that you know when you make a decision to do something, actually do it. There's there's a period of time where the decision's already made here, but then it translates to you know your actual your mm-hmm. body actually doing it. What is that mechanism? Like what is the dis- the decision making process that does that? There's some sort of an internal like ethics decision or or you know some sort of discussion that's taking place that you're not conscious of. yes And it's as a result of your exposure. Whatever your exposure is, uh, visually and orally, you
0: know. It's great that you used the word discussion for that because I really think that really describes it very well. There is there's an internal there's an internal uh, uh, an army of parts yeah. that are making contracts all the time, right? Like in a way. <laughs>
1: Yeah. Well, and I think, you know, philosophical, I think that we are, you know, we're in survival mode in just about everything. We seek pleasure, avoid pain on the most basic level. And how our brain is wired and how we react, you know, somehow trickles towards that. But I also think it has a lot to do with exposure. You know, how willing are you as an individual to expose yourself to different cultures and, you know, different ideas. And, you know, it's the, it's the, you know, it's interviews, it's like this, you know, and your podcast where you're talking to lots of different people, getting their perspectives, and like, pulling it on and like take little facets or, you know, little things from each person and develop your own ideas uh, and expand on them further. But that's, that's kind of what it's all about. That's the, that's the cool life experience part, you know?
0: <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> Hey, uh, fantastic, Giovanni. This was this was great, and uh, time yeah. time passed very quickly for me here. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
1: Same here. Same here. I'm glad we uh, glad we connected. Was, yes.
0: Fun. Yeah. Yeah. I think I think you know, like I'm pretty sure other people will find this very fascinating as well. And uh, and and I hope we we were both able to uh, put things into words that people are able to uh, understand. <laughs>
1: i hope so yes. <laughs> back in the hiding i go right yes. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah thank you very much
0: hey giovanni my friend i'll i'll talk to you soon All right, yeah. take care bye for now right, take care bye. Bye.